Well, hello, everybody. Thank you all for, for being here. Um, thank you for your interest in, in this topic uh, and for coming here. Um, I want to thank the British Museum for this wonderful opportunity, uh, particularly to all the people who are behind the scenes that make these kinds of lectures possible, uh, and especially Daniel Ferguson and, of course, uh, Alexander Green. Um, I hope you've all had a chance to go uh, and see the exhibit that Alex has, has curated, which is entitled Pilgrims, Healers, and Wizards, Buddhism and Religious Practices in Burma and Thailand. How many of you have seen the exhibit thus far? All right, great, fantastic. And how many of you are planning to go? Okay, great, that, that encapsulates just about everyone there. So I, I think this is a fascinating and revealing combination of uh, pieces from the museum's collection, some of which uh, are being displayed for the first time, and also more contemporary pieces from the kind of everyday practices of um, Buddhists today. And I'd like to ask you just to join me momentarily in congratulating Alex on an excellent exhibition here. So today I take as my topic the, the contestation of Buddhist identity in contemporary Myanmar. The country is in the midst of an unprecedented opening up, and a series of economic and political reforms are bringing in a wave of outside influences, some of which are welcomed by Burmese Buddhists, others provoke a more ambivalent response, and others are strongly rejected or criticized. And in this context, and I promise this is the only slide with lots of text, uh, in this context, I want to ask, how are Buddhists in the country defining and redefining themselves with reference to other religious groups, to their own histories, and to a global Buddhist community? And how are these identities disseminated and contested through new communication technologies, new religious practices, and reimagined notions of what it means to be Buddhist in Myanmar? Now, I want to begin with two descriptions of religious practice, one of Burma in the 19th century, and the other from just a week ago. The first is from the British colonial administrator, uh, James George Scott, uh, maybe better known to some of you by his Burmese name, Shui Yo. And in his book, The Burman, Scott wrote, a pagoda feast in Burma is one of the most frequent, as well as one of the most picturesque sites in the country. Each shrine has its own special sacred day, and the annual celebration of it is the occasion of a, ge of a general picnic the congregation of people from all parts of the surrounding districts being bent no less on pleasure than on pious observances. Youths and girls look forward to them as seasons of mirth and flirtation. Elderly people have no less liking for them. They meet their old friends and receive and recount the gossip of half a dozen districts. It's a joyous holiday and it's sanctified by the thought that the few hours spent at the pagoda gather up stores of merit, certainly not less profitable then the social delights are pleasurable. And now another more contemporary account, actually taken from a Washington Post article last week. Incense swirls through the air on a darkening evening as a Buddhist monk sits cross-legged before an ancient temple, his eyes closed in meditation. His cell phone rings. The monk fumbles in his traditional crimson robe, speaks for a while, then puts it aside and continues meditating. All around him, his fellow Burmese are celebrating a full moon festival at the Shwedagon Pagoda, snapping pictures of themselves in front of flickering candles and filming their children. Once, a trip to the most sacred site for Burmese Buddhists meant prayerful contemplation. Today, it's like Disneyland. Now, these two scenes are typical in some senses, although 
possibly a bit overblown and problematic in others. Obviously, given Scott's description, it was never just prayerful contemplation that went on as part of these festivals. And, and I also want to suggest that it's rather presumptuous to assume that the contemplation part is somehow the more serious or meaningful or more genuinely Buddhist practice, and I'll get to that in just a moment. But these two kind of scenes remind us that while the material items and the level of technological sophistication may change over the years, Buddhist practice always contains a combination of the mundane and the otherworldly, the everyday and the ineffable. What Buddhists do and the reasons why they do these things are essential parts of Buddhist identity. But even as a religious identity is maintained by practice, for many people in the world, it is also maintained through birth into a particular community. And this leads us to a fundamental tension that I believe structures the contestation of Buddhist identity in contemporary Myanmar, as in so many other places. Is religious identity constituted by what you do or by what you are? Now, before we start to look in more detail at the Myanmar case, I want to ask you this afternoon to suspend whatever ideas you have of what Buddhism is, what Buddhists believe, what is real Buddhism. You may know something of the teachings of the Buddha. You may even identify as a Buddhist yourself. However, today, my goal is to open up space for different understandings of what it means to be Buddhist, what it means to practice Buddhism. And importantly, I want to insist that none of these ways of being Buddhist is any better or more genuine than another. All of the people and the groups that we talk about today would certainly consider themselves to be Buddhist, and I would strongly argue that they all are Buddhist, despite some of them engaging in actions that many of us would consider to be quite un-Buddha-like indeed. Now, the important distinction here is I'm not conducting a kind of, or sorry, is that I am conducting more a, a kind of cultural analysis of, of identity, not a theological investigation. And I hope that this type of analysis can orient us towards the tension between these two ways of establishing a religious identity. Are you Buddhist because of what you do, or are you Buddhist because of what you are? And this distinction, I think, goes to the heart of why so many of us find it difficult to make sense of the fact that the Buddhists we see in Myanmar or Sri Lanka or Thailand don't seem to be acting as we think that Buddhists ought to act. One reason, I think, is that we're likely influenced by the contemporary character of Christian religious identity in the modern West. So the scholar Slavika Jakelic shines a critical light, a helpful critical light, on the assumption that many of us make that religion is a choice because for many of us, it is, and it has been. In fact, most of the world's religious population would fit into the category of collectivistic, of what she calls collectivistic religiosity, that is, being born into a religious practice and identity. And she identifies an implicit theory of religion that most of us hold, that, quote, understands religion to be about beliefs and rituals, that is, theology, and not about the kind of belonging that shapes communal boundaries, that is, identity, culture, or politics, end quote. Yet the fact that these identities are more culturally based does not make them any less religious or any less salient. And Jekelich's warning, although she makes it in a study of, uh, of Christianity in Europe, would appear to be particularly relevant for the study of Buddhism. Most Buddhists in the world are born into their religious identities, whereas most Western scholars or practitioners come to the religion as a matter of choice usually through texts, through philosophy, or selected meditation practices, often 
failing to recognize the complex relations of religion to collective identities. Now, one of the things that I love about the exhibit that this lecture is connected to is that Alex has tried to challenge our preconceived ideas of what Buddhism is and what Buddhists do at every turn. So for every image of the Buddha meditating, and here we have a poster of the Buddha meditating and surrounded by scenes from the 10 great Jataka tales. There is a page from a tattooing manual, and, and this is one from a, a 19th century tattooing manual uh, in Myanmar. This we effectively weaves together images or concepts that might be more recognizably Buddhist with those that might be pre-Buddhist or connected to local spirits or powerful beings. Many of the men in Myanmar and Thailand who have applied and received these kinds of tattoos over the years would undoubtedly consider themselves to be Buddhist, although they might themselves distinguish between the kinds of situations in which one would appeal to the Buddhist teachings that are related to moral practice and the path to enlightenment, and the more worldly efficacious practices that help one to navigate the everyday realm with its malevolent beings and very real kinds of dangers. As some people are fond of saying in Myanmar, the spirits for this life, the Buddha for the next life. And I think it's important to contest this constructed idea of a true Buddhism, not just among ourselves as Western observers, but also among Burmese Buddhists. While the notion of purifying Buddhist practice has been around for quite a while, and is usually connected in some way or another to attempts to secure political power, this particularly modern version that emphasizes philosophy and meditation emerged generally in the 19th century in Burma, slightly earlier in Sri Lanka, as a response to Western colonial and scholarly projects that sought to identify the purest, most original form of the Buddhist teachings. As a result, it's still fairly common today in Myanmar to hear someone contrast her true Buddhism with the more traditional Buddhist practices of the masses, Myopala Bodhavada in Burmese. I even hear people disparage their own uh, practice as merely Myopala, merely traditional Buddhist, suggesting that there's something less legitimate, less truly Buddhist about what they do. As I said, the theological debates are likely to rage until the Buddhist religion disappears entirely. More on that in a moment. But for the purposes of political and social analysis, I think we miss much of the picture if we merely dismiss these practices and beliefs as not Buddhist or not sufficiently Buddhist in some way. Okay, so having dispensed with the tendency to try to identify true Buddhism, and I hope we can put that aside, uh, I want to give two examples of the ways in which Buddhist practices are changing in contemporary Myanmar. First, we can see some changes in donation practices, what's known as dana in Theravada Buddhism. In the past, the strongest norm guiding donations had to do with, on the one hand, what one was donated. So a scoop of rice in the morning uh, to the monks on their alms rounds is a nice daily practice. And here we see a picture of monks on their regular alms rounds. And this occurs still uh, in neighborhoods throughout Myanmar. But donating an entire monastery or building a pagoda, of course, gains one huge amounts of merit. The other important element is the moral purity of the one accepting the donation. So giving to a learned monk or one that many people consider to be very close to enlightenment or have reached some level of enlightenment would garner more merit than a donation to a young novice who has just put on his robes a month ago. Donation norms are changing in some communities in Myanmar, influenced partly by recent events and driven largely by a few prominent monks. 
After Cyclone Nargis devastated parts of the country in May 2008, many Buddhists took part in distributing aid to affected areas. For some, this seemed to catalyze what had been a quietly growing trend towards what we might call social rather than religious donations. That is, uh, donations for orphanages or hospitals treating HIV-positive patients, rather than tangible support for building monasteries or pagodas. Uh, and here we have, as an, as an example, this is a uh, picture of one of the monks from uh, a famous Pandau monastery in Mandalay. Some of you may have heard of Pandau. They have extensive teaching programs, um, and they work with a lot of uh, orphaned populations. Some prominent monks have taken up these causes, even arguing that what makes a donation meritorious is not primarily the moral standing of the recipient, but the level of need of the recipient. While this change is likely more urban and certainly hasn't supplanted these kinds of religious donation practices, it is a way in which Buddhist donation norms are adapting to different social situations. Second, I think an incredibly important trend in Buddhist communication practice has been the growing production and expanding availability of videos of monks preaching. Uh, if you've seen the exhibit, you may think it odd that the British Museum has included a DVD in one of its display cases. So not actually a video running, but the DVD as, as a material object. I think this correctly and perfectly captures uh, a significant development that has had an enormous impact on the ways in which Buddhists share ideas about their religion, the way they treat popular monks and monks in general, and the ways in which certain interpretations of Buddhist teaching and Buddhist identity can spread more rapidly through Myanmar today. So even a decade ago, there was a limited season within which it was common for a small population of monks to travel to different places to give sermons. You might hear a teaching from one of your local monks on the occasion of a festival day, but opportunities to hear, monks were hear other monks were relatively rare. Cassette recordings of some particularly famous monks or famous sermons would circulate, but not very widely. With the advent now of this cheaper video production and of the capability to do that and disseminate it quickly, the sermon that a monk gives in a relatively isolated part of the country can be turned into a DVD and within a week be available for purchase and distribution on the streets of Yangon. When a community somewhere sponsors a monk to give a sermon, they can record and distribute videos as a form of merit-making, making these teachings available to those who weren't able to attend the actual event. These videos are shared among friends and family, and they're relatively affordable, also given as donation items very frequently, and they're discussed and circulated around neighborhoods. For many people, while listening closely to the preaching might be the best way to use the recording, even playing it in the background is believed to be meritorious because the sublime teachings of the Buddha will work their way into your subconscious and produce a positive mind state. Um, and as, I'm, I'm smiling a little bit as I'm saying this, but, but this is, uh, you know, this is uh, certainly a, a belief that many people uh, hold. I even know people who play these videos while driving in their cars and we'll leave the danger uh, of that aside for a moment, but as, as a kind of supramundane alternative soundtrack, they say, to the constant and unavoidable blasting of horns that characterizes traffic in Yangon today. These videos have produced superstar monks in the country who are known widely for their insightful or at least entertaining sermons. 
Now, they also put pressure on monks in interesting ways to adapt their preaching in some ways to, to lay preferences. Uh, so adding in a reference to a popular South Korean soap opera or to a trendy rapper. They've also proven to be an effective vehicle for the spread of nationalism, both in a pro-Buddhist version and in a more explicit and dangerously anti-Muslim orientation. I'll speak in more detail about these aspects in a moment, but suffice to say, watching and sharing monks' sermons seems to have become a regular part of many Buddhists' daily and regular practice in Myanmar. So let's turn now to the current political context and the ways in which changes in some areas are producing contestation and anxiety in Buddhist identities. Most of you probably know, after five decades of international isolation and repressive rule by a succession of military governments, Myanmar began a gradual political transition in March 2011 with a partial handover of power to a quasi-civilian government. Defying expectations, President Thane Sein, a former mili military general himself, initiated a series of reforms that have opened up space for political particip participation and economic development. The government has released hundreds of political prisoners, relaxed restrictions on the press, passed laws allowing for peaceful demonstrations and the formation of unions. It's secured ceasefires with ethnic armed groups and made a commitment to a nationwide ceasefire accord. And it's also lifted restrictions on opposition parties, allowing Do Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy to re-enter electoral politics. However, each of these encouraging changes carries with it a sobering counterpart. The promising rhetoric of the new government hasn't necessarily been matched by a capacity or willingness to carry out many necessary reforms or address institutional barriers to meaningful change. Some political prisoners still remain behind bars. Their numbers are swelled regularly by newly arrested activists. Continued violent conflict with several ethnic armed groups threatens the peace talks, and the hoped-for benefits of foreign investment have not only not yet appeared, but they seem the benefits that are there seem focused on a model of growth that has led more to dispossession of land and indebtedness for much of the rural population of the country. Despite the dramatic and genuine change that's brought some freedoms in urban areas, these reforms have yet to significantly include the lives of the country's vast rural population, much of which exists in a world far removed from the center, both geographically and psychologically. These challenges translate into ongoing feelings of anxiety, cynicism, and uncertainty for many in the population. Meanwhile, as is common to countries undergoing rapid political transition, new domestic conflicts are emerging. So decades of authoritarianism and violent conflict have left entrenched wariness, if not outright fear and hostility between different groups, which has created major barriers to collaborative efforts to bring peace and reform, and has also fueled communal tensions and violence. At root, on one hand, are concerns about who will profit and who will be left behind in the midst of these vast changes. How will revenues be shared between resource-rich border areas and the central government? Who will have a voice in political decision-making? Also present are fears about the perpetuation of the Buddhist religion in the face of so many outside influences, and specifically the perpetuation of a Burmese Buddhist identity. Now, <clears throat> In general, this anxiety about Buddhism is not new, and it's actually fueled as uh, one of the drivers of, of, of Buddhist practice. So the Buddha preached that like everything else that comes into existence, even his teachings and the religious practice that has grown up around them is temporary, it's impermanent. 
Now, different interpretations exist of exactly how long he predicted the religion would last, but the dominant view in Myanmar seems to be that we're on the downturn, and every effort must be made to preserve Buddhist teachings and strengthen moral practice. We need only look at the Burmese Buddhist responses to British colonialism from the late 19th century through the early decades of the nationalist movement in the first half of the 20th. Because the British administration refused to support the institution of the monkhood in the same way that Burmese kings had and sought to supplant the monastic role in education, many Burmese Buddhists were very worried that this would lead to a decline in monastic discipline and in inculcating Buddhist values to children. An account of Buddhist responses during this period is provided uh, by two recent books, uh, The Birth of Insight by Eric Braun and Saving Buddhism by Alicia Turner. And for anyone who wants to know more about Burmese Buddhism in the colonial period, which actually has a number of parallels with the present, I'd, I'd highly recommend these books. One way that Buddhists responded to these fears about the decline and disappearance of Buddhism was to look inward and attempt to strengthen their own practice. The actions of a famous Burmese monk, Ledi Seadaw, were both representative and superlative in this respect. So knowing that the religion could no longer rely on royal support, Ledi enlisted lay Buddhists in securing what he saw as the most important elements of the faith. Other people have described his efforts as part of a trend towards the laicization of Buddhism. And I think we could also consider it a sort of democratization of the religion as well, making practices that were previously reserved for monks, things like meditation and the study of Buddhist philosophy, available to all. Ledi traveled around the country setting up meditation groups and study groups while also publishing translations and commentaries in easy-to-understand Burmese or easier to understand Burmese. It's not all that easy to read Ledi Seadaw texts either. In the terms that I used at the beginning of this lecture, I think we could see this as defining the religious community through practice, that is, what Buddhists do. Now, by contrast, as the nationalist movement gathered strength in the 1920s and 1930s, another perspective was dominant. The idea that Burmese Buddhists constituted a particular community one defined by religion, certainly, but also language, a shared history, and by birth into a particular culture. Nationalist riots in the 1930s were directed first against Indians and later specifically against Muslims, coding these populations as foreigners outside of a national community that had occasionally flexible boundaries but was generally defined in terms of both nationality and in terms of the Buddhist religion. I think this would be an example of defining the religious community not by practice, but by what Buddhists are. Now, I don't mean to suggest that these are two entirely separate perspectives, and they are, in some senses, just two sides of the same coin, as any religious community is likely defined in both of these ways at any given moment. I do, however, want to draw our attention to the tension between these two views and also note a similar dual trajectory today with regard to contemporary Burmese Buddhist identity. Again, one that's not easily separated. Most of us, I imagine, if asked about Myanmar and Buddhism today, would likely immediately think about this resurgent Buddhist nationalism and the discrimination and violence being committed against Muslim populations in the country, uh, especially against the Rohingya minority in the West. This is certainly the dominant framing in the Western media and is indeed troubling and capable of derailing these once promising 
reforms and this transition. It's important, I think, to try to understand, understand, not justify, the dynamics and beliefs behind this violence, behind this anti-Muslim sentiment. Also, without accepting the idea that people expressing these views are somehow not real Buddhists, it's, is, is it reasonable to ask, how do they understand these actions to be compatible with their religion? I think to answer that, or to begin to answer that, we need to return to this idea of anxiety about the perpetuation of Buddhism. The word that Theravada Buddhists use to describe their religion in its entirety is sasana, which includes not just the sacred texts and commentaries, the doctrines and the values, the monks and the sacred sites, but also the lived experience of Buddhism within the population, something that effectively encapsulates Buddhist identity. Nationalist Buddhist groups in Myanmar justify discrimination and implicitly even sometimes violence against Muslims as a necessary response to what they see as the imminent threat of Islam's expansion in Asia and its encroachment on the sasana, the Buddhist community. They often make reference to a historical narrative uh, in which places such as Iraq, Afghanistan, and Indonesia were formerly Buddhist countries, but were conquered by Muslims and forcefully converted to become the Islamic majority states that we see today. This narrative is, I hope you know, false, but it contains enough references to actual historical events that it can be convincing. Uh, especially in a place like Myanmar that's been closed for decades with a rote educational system that is still strongly influenced by Buddhism. So there were some places in the world where Islam, like other religions, was spread by the sword, but Indonesia, for example, was not one of them. There were also at times Buddhist communities in places such as present-day Iraq and Afghanistan, yet it would be inaccurate for a number of reasons to characterize these as having been Buddhist countries. Now, we might also take issue with the claim of Burmese Buddhists that their, country is in, that their country itself is in danger of being taken over by Islam. With a dominant Buddhist majority of anywhere from 80 to 90% and a relatively small Muslim population, this claim seems almost laughable. Yet, this, what I've described, is not the context within which Burmese Buddhists are necessarily evaluating this claim or this idea. First, they're looking globally at a world where Islam does appear to be spreading effectively and Buddhism receding, at least in a sense of a cultural or national identity. And second, while a glimpse at Myanmar overall might suggest that Buddhist identity and Buddhist practice is in a very secure position, in some parts of the country, such as Rakhine State in the West, the Muslim population constitutes just under half of the population. Move in even closer to look at selected townships near the border with Bangladesh, and the Muslim population increases to a majority estimated at 80 to 90% in some places. Now, I want to be careful. This is not to endorse the claim in any way that Islam broadly conceived is a threat either to Burmese Buddhists or to any other community. Merely to point out that the perception of Buddhism under threat can look a bit more understandable from particular perspectives. And in a situation like this, some Buddhists in Myanmar and elsewhere in Asia, places like Sri Lanka and Thailand, argue that actions that are taken against non-Buddhist communities, which would seem counter to Buddhist values of compassion, tolerance, equanimity, are justified if undertaken in defense of the sasana, in defense of the religion. 
this existential fear that Buddhism itself is in danger of disappearing is what underlies an implied argument that the end of preserving Buddhism justifies means that might seem to be counter to some core Buddhist values. Again, I want to emphasize that this is an attempt to kind of understand these arguments rather than justify them. So this is probably the dominant narrative in Myanmar today, one that posits Islam as the external threat to Buddhism in Myanmar. But it's certainly not the only one. As religious communities often look outward to label other communities as a danger to their own practice, in moments of upheaval or uncertainty, they can also look inward. And just like Ledi Seara, who sought to include lay Buddhists in a strengthening of religious practice in Burma during the colonial period, Buddhists in Myanmar today are also looking inward to reinforce their own moral practice, especially through the education of children. This is certainly not a new phenomenon in the country. As in the past, education took place almost exclusively through the monasteries, and in some rural areas, this is still the primary venue for education. But as public education is today secular, at least officially, uh, Buddhists have looked for other ways to ensure that their religious values are effectively transmitted to their children. One vehicle has been something called Yinje Lenma classes, something that roughly translates as making sure that children are cultured and polite. Sporadically over the last few years, a different kind of class has also emerged, often called Dhamma classes, where Dhamma refers to the Buddha's teachings uh, more generally, and occasionally called Buddhist Sunday school classes. The past two years in Myanmar have seen an absolute explosion of these classes, with some groups teaching tens of thousands of children uh, in hundreds of classes across the country. Where they're centrally organized, the level of top-down control varies, and I think it's important to get a sense of the range of, of models here. Uh, one group conducting these classes is the Organization for the Protection of Race and Religion, uh, maybe better known as MABATHA in its Burmese acronym, and they merely sell a curriculum book and expect interested lay people to conduct their own classes. At the other end of the spectrum, a group called the Dhamma School Foundation has a much greater level of organization with a detailed teacher training curriculum, the involvement of monks in the teaching, and regular evaluations, even including regular site visits. And this is a, an example of a, a Dhamma School curriculum book, Dhamma School Foundation curriculum book. Now, nowhere do these classes completely supplant the public education that children receive, but as might be expected in a Buddhist majority country, the line between the two is not always clear. So how should we interpret the rapid expansion of these Buddhist Sunday schools? Is it a laudable impulse to strengthen one's own practice by turning inward and reinforcing the best values of one's religion? Or, as some of you may be thinking, is it a more insidious indoctrination of children into an anti-Muslim exclusionary national identity? The challenge is that it may be both even where the latter is not explicit or intended. In general, the curricula that I have seen that these groups use is mostly innocuous, emphasizing the general values, practices, and the history of Theravada Buddhism. Yet we also hear troubling reports of nationalist groups uh, putting anti-Muslim pamphlets into their curriculum books, or of monks not just teaching about Buddhism, but also spreading rumors or misinformation about Muslims. This cover, I think, of one of the Dhamma School Foundation uh, books illustrates the point very nicely. It's not just what's inside the book 
Equally important is what happens in the classroom, the context in which a child learns these lessons. So even in situations where the classes are not presented with an anti-Muslim bias, and I want to stress that I am not in any way suggesting that the Dhamma School Foundation includes this in their curricula or in their actual classes, the very fact that the anti-Muslim framing appears to be everywhere in Myanmar these days means that teachers and, and students are influenced to interpret what they learn through that framing. Indeed, the rapid expansion of Buddhist Sunday schools itself appears as proof that Buddhism is somehow in danger, and this is a necessary response to kind of shore up our religious practice. The pertinent and very consequential questions in Myanmar today are what is the source of that danger, and what is the appropriate response? Do Buddhists choose to turn inward and protect their religion by strengthening their own moral practice, or do they focus outward? convincing themselves that the threat is from another religion that seeks to overwhelm and convert them. The latter perspective appears to be dominant in Myanmar at the moment, but there are groups and individuals arguing on behalf of the former, and I'm happy to talk a bit more about that uh, in the Q&A if people are interested. Whichever position we might personally endorse, I want to stress again that both perspectives are rooted strongly in Buddhism, in Buddhist identities and beliefs with one oriented towards defining the religious community through what one does, and the other oriented more towards what one is. Now, it may seem like what's at stake in this moment of change and uncertainty in Myanmar is Buddhist identity itself, whether you believe it to be under threat by expansionist Islam or by Buddhists themselves who aren't acting according to the values of their religion. But what the exhibition here at the museum so skillfully conveys is that Buddhist identity in Myanmar, indeed anywhere, has always been multiple, has always included a wide range of practices and values, and it has also always been contested. I would argue that the people who pray to the Buddha asking for favors or blessings, or the people who tattoo themselves and insert blessed amulets under their skin for protection, certainly ought to be considered Buddhists, and their practices considered Buddhist practices even though the Buddha said that once he reached nirvana, he would pass out of existence, so there would be no one that anyone could pray to, and even though we cannot find any account in the canonical scriptures where the Buddha endorses the production of amulets or of magical tattooing. Buddhist practices, like Buddhist identities, are wide-ranging and regularly changing through interaction and contestation. I think that notion is very effectively demonstrated in the exhibition, and I hope that I've also communicated it today by looking at Buddhist identities in contemporary Myanmar. Thank you very much.